an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, 50 years after D.B. Cooper hijacked his way into history, what historic sites remain in Portland and Seattle? There's a lot of aviation myth and lore around it. It's one of those cases that, you know, hasn't been solved, and I think that's what keeps the intrigue alive. And then, from the archives, men from Portland created Seattle's first housing boom in 1851. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. 637, and on Fridays, our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, joins us for All Over the Map, which is a quick look at the stories behind local places and things. And this week, the forgotten origins and anniversary of a monument to the very first ascent of Mount Rainier. Felix? Morning, Dave. Yeah, it's so nice to see Mount Rainier covered in snow once again after that very disturbing snow-free look it went with for most of the past few months. Now, about 10 days ago, I saw some photos on social media of a stone monument on the mountain along the Skyline Trail, not far from Paradise. It commemorates the first time human reached the summit back in August 1870. I'd never seen or heard of it before, so I reached out to David Winfrey, who'd posted them. And we have those photos of my Northwest. Winfrey found the monument pretty moving, especially the setting, and so I did a little research, and the backstory's pretty cool. It's a big bench made of stones that were gathered nearby and held together with concrete. A few of the stones are engraved with the names of the first two climbers. That's Philemon B. Philemon Beecher Van Trump and Hazard Stevens, son of the first territorial governor, Isaac Stevens, by the way. It also mentions the indigenous man, Sluiskin, who guided Van Trump and Stevens on their climb and tried to talk them out of it because it was so dangerous. The monument is in the spot where Sluiskin waited, kind of a base camp, while the two climbers made the summit, and Sluiskin Falls is nearby, too. Now, the park held a 48th anniversary event for the first climb back in August 1918, and Hazard Stevens was there. He was in his late 70s. Um, Van Trump and Sluiskin had already passed away. And Stevens took a walk to go admire the glacier named after him, and he pointed out to someone the campsite where Sluiskin had waited for the two. And somebody had the bright idea to mark the spot with stones, and they built a cairn right then and there. Mm-hmm. And then Hazard Stevens died about seven weeks later. And by the next summer, those two famous local outdoor clubs, uh, Seattle's Mountaineers and Portland's Mazamas, they decided to build the monument, and plans were to dedicate it by the 49th anniversary in August 1919, but there were delays getting permission from the park. Uh, red tape even in 1919. Finally, on September 22, 1921, that's 100 years ago this past Wednesday, the stone bench was dedicated. And UW Professor Edmund Meany was there. He was president of the Mountaineers. He's a famous local historian and author. And... Uh, he was an old friend of Hazard Stevens. He'd written a poem for the 1918 event, which he read again in 1921. But my favorite line from Meany's remarks 100 years ago aren't from the poem. It is poetic, though, and pretty prescient. Meany said this, These ceremonies will soon be forgotten, but this monument will endure. And sure enough, here we are 100 years later, <laughs> uncovering the backstory, which hasn't been shared for a very long time. Um, I want to thank David Winfrey for sharing his photos, which we do have in my Northwest. And Christina Ciari of the Mountaineers, she tracked down this annual report from 1921, which had all these details and this great old photo, which we also have at Minor Northwest. So thanks for everybody's help for making the story come together. And uh, 100 years ago this week, they marked that first climb of Mount Rainier. Surfing Greater Seattle. D.B. Cooper, won't you please come back? We're looking for your high and low. 
Cause leaving ain't polite in the middle of the night. D.B. Cooper, where did you go? The 50th anniversary of the infamous D.B. Cooper hijacking is coming up this Thanksgiving Eve, but our resident historian Felix Spinell isn't going to wait. He's already on the story in search of what traces of the crime might still remain at the Portland and Seattle airports. Felix is brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Those airports have been completely remodeled since then. What what traces could still remain yeah, of the airports? You would think that. Of course, there's also the traces of imagination that I like to focus a lot I of see, my stories on, since so much of what I talk about doesn't exist anymore, Dave. Um, <laughs> quick refresher for those who don't know, D.B. Cooper, unknown hijacker who got on a Northwest Airlines 727 in Portland, afternoon of November 24th, 1971. That was Thanksgiving Eve. On the way to Seattle, he told a flight attendant he had a bomb. They landed at SeaTac. He collected $200,000 in cash and four parachutes and released the 35 passengers. The plane took off again and headed south, and somewhere over southwest Washington, Cooper jumped out and was never seen ever again. Now, there have been so many theories about who D.B. Cooper really was. You know, we talked with a guy recently on this show who's searching for money down along the Columbia River. I don't have any theories. In fact, I'm pretty tired of theories. So I wanted to visit Portland International Airport and SeaTac because those are the only two places where we know for sure D.B. Cooper actually was, and see what might remain from a historical perspective from 50 years ago. I met up with Port of Portland spokesperson Kama Simons. She dug up some old maps and aerial photos of the Portland airport from 1971. So this is the terminal roadway that comes up here in front, and you can almost see there was, some, there was a little bit of parking right, right in front. Obviously not something we do now. Um, but then you enter the building, and this was the ticket lobby wall so back in the day you could come in and buy a ticket here yeah and and that's exactly what db cooper did nobody knows how he got to the portland airport 50 years ago but he did pay 20 dollars cash for his ticket to seattle and he walked to the gate you know with no security screening between him and the airplane and portland airport it's not a huge airport nowadays but the black and white photos and the of 1971 it was much much smaller you could just literally park right in front Now, it's no stretch to say that the hijacking is a significant cultural moment in Northwest history and really American history. And that got me wondering, since Portland prides itself on being famously weird, is it weird enough to have a historic plaque for D.B. Cooper? (laughs) There's not a plaque, no. You know, I think it's it's one of those, it is, there's a lot of aviation myth and lore around it. It's one of those cases that, you know, hasn't been solved. And I think that's what keeps the intrigue alive, like, we don't know and there's lots of suppositions there's lots of theories there's lots of different pieces of information but ultimately it's still there's still a lot of questions out there um to that end he's still a criminal he did something illegal um so i think we would be more likely to celebrate some of the amazing aviation pioneers yeah and they do have there's apparently a bar in the works that will honor uh, women aviation pioneers in the portland area now, maybe I'm used to trekking to the North Satellite at SeaTac by the escalators and the subway ride, but from the ticketing area at Portland International where D.B. Cooper bought his ticket, it was an incredibly short walk to the actual spot where he and the other passengers boarded Northwest Airlines Flight 305. Just a few hundred yards. I mean, it was, it just struck me because I think of airports as these huge places. It was really a tiny place back in 1971. What we're um, looking at here hundred... is a schematic of the airport as it was back in 1971. And if you're looking at it from the sky, it shows essentially the two concourses in a Y shape. And the, the either sides of the Y, and they come down to the main terminal that's in the middle. You can see the Northwest Airlines flights were out of this um, concourse L right here. 
So Concourse L, is, it's right off the main terminal, and back in November of 1971, Flight 305 boarded from Gate 52, which is just the second gate down from the concourse from the main terminal. Passengers went to the lower level and then boarded the 727 via the built-in stairs in the rear door of the jet. Same stairs that D.B. Cooper would, you know, a couple hours later actually jump out the back of. Now, Concourse L is gone, but in its place is Concourse C. So the closest spot to the D.B. Cooper gate, if anyone wants to make a pilgrimage, I guess would probably be gate C7. Now, one last question for Cam Simons. Was there any reason that D.B. Cooper chose Portland for his flight into infamy? Uh, shoot, maybe he lived nearby. I mean, I could put all sorts of guesses out there, but I, I don't think we really know, do we? I mean, there must have been some reason. Anyway, so the 727 took off around 3 p.m. It was not long after that the hijacking actually began. Uh, next stop after the short flight from Portland, and then a lot of flying around in a holding pattern north of SeaTac, was SeaTac Airport, where the plane landed around 5.45 p.m. Now, at SeaTac, D.B. Cooper never set foot in the airport. He stayed aboard the 727 while it was refueled and while he waited for the money and parachutes before releasing the passengers. Um, like Portland's airport, SeaTac has undergone so much construction in the past 50 years, it was a little tough to find the spot where the jet was parked 50 years ago. Fortunately, there's a terrific photo of the plane during the hijacking taken by a guy named Bruce McKim for the Seattle Times. It shows the 727 sitting on a concrete area with a fence and distinctive building in the, in the distance behind it. It was probably taken from the old outdoor observations at SeaTac that you could still visit as recently as the late 1970s. I remember going there when I was a kid. Now, with help from airport spokesperson Perry Cooper, no relation to D.B. Cooper, he insists, uh, we figured out that the building in the background of the old Seattle Times photo is Prince of Peace Lutheran Church, which is now completely obscured by trees when you stand there at the airport. But I went out to SeaTac and took a drive with Perry Cooper around the tarmac and got as close as we safely could to the D.B. Cooper parking spot at the south end of what's now the center runway. So what we're, ta what we're understanding is, is that they would have landed on what is now our center runway and would have come down to the connection between a taxiway in the very end and the tail south end of that runway. So at the time it was 3-4 left or 16 right. And right now it's now the center runway since we've added the new runway to the west. Yeah, and so the 727 took off again and headed south with Cooper and just a couple of the crew members around 7.40 p.m. There's a few more spots at SeaTac related to the hijacking, though D.B. Cooper didn't set foot there. Um, one's the Northwest Airlines Lounge, where the passengers and two of the flight attendants were taken by bus once they were released. That lounge was in the B concourse and is long gone. The other spot is Gate A4. That's where Flight 305 was supposed to have unloaded the passengers had there not been a hijacking. And Perry Cooper says, you know, like Portland, there's no plaque there. Gate Commember... Gate commemorations are not out of the question, though. They're just limited to non-criminal activities. Yeah. We have the Sleepless in Seattle gate. We've known that for oh, years. That? that is N7. Oh, I, see. I didn't know that. We, okay. we actually had a celebration when that closed as well during construction for um, uh, North Satellite Modernization. And we actually reached out to the film company, and they allowed us to use a photo and stuff of Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks at the time. Of course, we... They then asked us to hand out the new DVDs, Blu-ray DVDs that they had. <laughs> so so it basic huh? bottom line, it'd be really hard to come up with like a national historic site with a freedom trail type thing, some sort of a plan. There's just, yeah. it's all kind of exists in the mind. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's an amazingly big part of, of uh, the sort of the folk myths around here, but it just doesn't quite, doesn't quite exist anywhere. Yeah, so when will you yourself launch an expedition into the woods around the Columbia River? To, uh, yeah, see, to try your I, hand at finding the money. 
No, that's too abstract. I like stuff like this where there's actually evidence. I don't like oh. crackpot theories. I mean, I have, of course, I have my own crackpot theories about lots of things. But with D.B. Cooper, there's been just so much. I feel like that, that's been just thoroughly plowed, that ground, until they find more evidence mm-hmm. somewhere out there in southwest Washington. I mean, it's, we have to stick with the concrete facts. And that's, that's what I'm focused on, Dave, the concrete, concrete facts, facts of history. Got it. Uh, you can find all of Felix's features at MyNorthwest.com. Felix Bennell, thank you. Thanks, Dave. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, that late September day when the advance party landed at what's now West Seattle. When you find your own Come the brides. It was 166 years ago this week when three youngish guys from Portland visited West Seattle. They liked what they saw, so they built a big reinforced concrete bridge in a Trader Joe's. Yes, <laughs> 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 Felix Bonell is here to explain why we're still talking about the first party to land at Alki. Yeah, Felix, I mean, it, brought to you by the King County Library System. Yeah, there's a monument out at Alki to the settlers who landed in November of 1851. Big, tall obelisk, very uh, ornate thing. But across the street, there's a much tinier little plaque that often gets overlooked. It commemorates an event 166 years ago this week. Um, quick refresher, you know, Seattle's founded by a group from Illinois known as the Denny Party. They came out west, headed for the Willamette Valley. It was a large blended family, uh, about a dozen or so people. In April of 1851, they headed toward um, settling in Portland, the Portland area. That was where everyone was headed in the, that era. They stopped at the Dalles, and they ran into someone named Brock. We don't know his first name, but he told them about a place uh, called Puget Sound. Mm-hmm. We don't even know if Brock ever came to Puget Sound, but the, the Denny party thought, okay, forget the Willamette Valley. We're going to go to Puget Sound. There seems like there's more, more opportunity. one guy? Yeah, like, a, like you know, yeah, the AAA triptych? This, was, this guy was sort of the human triptych who suggested the Puget Sound. Anyway, the group got to Portland in August of 1851. Um, there's about 2,000 people living in Portland in, in those days. Arthur Denny, who was the 29-year-old, sort of not the head of the family. His father was there, too, but he was sort of the leader of the, of the, uh, the uh, group heading west. He was sick with the ague, which is kind of a malarial fever people would get in those days. So he sent his 19-year-old brother, David Denny, and a 31-year-old guy named John Lowe. They headed up north to uh, take Lowe's cattle across the Columbia and up the Cowlitz River so they could graze them and to hunt for a town site. They weren't looking to start up a farm. They wanted to locate a city. They were, these guys wanted to make money. So sometime on the afternoon of Thursday, September 25th, they landed at what's now Alki out in West Seattle. They, um, they'd uh, been joined by a guy named Lee Terry in Olympia. So three mm-hmm. guys came ashore and started looking for, a, kind of exploring what was around there. They built a little camp with a lean-to, but much like the weather's going to be the next couple days, late September 1851 was beautiful. So it wasn't, there wasn't a need for shelter. So the next day, with help from the Indians, they explored the Duwamish River and the Delta. They didn't see that Elliott Bay was actually the preferred town site because of the, the way the Duwamish looked much different in those days, right. a huge delta. It was kind of obscured things. There were other settlers who'd settled a few weeks prior along the Duwamish area. Uh, David Denny stayed with the natives in the canoe, and um, John Lowe and this other guy, Lee Terry, headed off into the woods and essentially disappeared. They didn't come back that night. Denny had to camp with the Indians alongside the Duwamish River. He didn't think he'd see them ever again. So anyway, the next day, September 27th, Lowe and Terry showed up again, and they figured out, okay, let's not build a cabin here where we first landed. Let's go a little bit north toward Alki Point. And um, Lowe headed back to Portland uh, to let his family know what was going on and let David Denny, uh, the rest of the Denny party, know that they'd found this place to, to build a town site. Um, 
David Denny wrote a note to his brother that essentially said, come as soon as you can. We have found a valley that will accommodate 1,000 families. <laughs> Obviously, many more than 1,000 families eventually came north. But So David Denny and uh, Lee Terry were left behind to build a cabin. On September 28th, they laid the foundation. Um, that was a Sunday. I don't know. They were fairly strict, uh, strictly religious. I don't know if they actually, that's the date they say they started building the cabin out there. So that's 166 years ago tomorrow. And they were making progress on the cabin. But Lee Terry realized they didn't have a fro, which was a tool you could. A fro? Yeah, it's a tool you could make um, cedar shakes with to build uh-huh. a roof. So Terry said, ah, I'll take care of it. I'll go down to Olympia or Nisqually and pick up a fro. <laughs> and if you read you know, uh, Sons of the Prophets, that very irreverent 1967 Seattle history by Bill Spidell, he says that Lee Terry did anything he could to avoid work, was very lazy. And like, the idea of just skipping town, go down to Nisqually to get a fro, let, let him disappear for many, many weeks. So basic premise, through October, the cabin's pretty much half built but doesn't have a roof. David Denny comes down with the ague. He's got the malarial fever. He hurts his foot with an axe. He's just laying there for pretty much the second half of October doing nothing. The rain, rainy season starts. It's raining in the cabin. He wakes up the morning of November 13th. He hears the, the clank of an anchor chain. Everybody's here now from Portland. The, the 12 original Denny Party members, there's lots of kids and everything. They come ashore. It's pouring rain. There's no roof on the cabin. The yeah. women are crying. And that's, that's where, you know, where Seattle is quote-unquote like founded. My- Sounds like most of my home improvement projects. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Half done. Why is the bathroom not working? Yeah. And eventually, you know, so Charles Terry, Lee Terry's brother, that's where they think that's where the town's going to be. They, they claim the land. It's not till February the next year that Denny's, Arthur Denny, decides Elliott Bay is where we're going to build the city. There's a deeper harbor there. We're not buffeted by winds from the south. You know what Alki's like in the, in the wintertime. So, yeah. you know, and then Alki used to be called, they used to call it Alki was how it was pronounced. Alki? Uh, yeah, yeah. And there's been controversies erupted in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s about the, the correct pronunciation of what's now called Alki. But it's, it's, I thought it's, they called it New York Alki. Yeah, they, see, yeah, they called it New York first because they thought this is going to be our big Western metropolis. Right. And, and Alki or Alki was a Chinook jargon word, a trading language word that it said essentially by and by or eventually. Yeah. So somebody, some wise guy said, it's not New York, but it's New York. Alki, like someday, maybe. Might, there might have been some irony in there or Very it might have been word. aspirational. I'll pay you for those furs, Alki. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so it wasn't until February they moved across Elliott Bay, and that's where Seattle really was founded. We have a, we're a city with many birthdays, so it's sort of confusing, and we're in that post-pioneer era where nobody really celebrates these important dates anymore. But it's fun to remember that 166 years ago, the whole thing kicked off with a little boat landing out there at what's now Alki Beach. That's when I should have bought land. Yeah. Thank you, Felix. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. You can follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and please take a moment to give a positive rating or review. Thanks for listening and please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. Things are swinging in Seattle. Things are swinging.